The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Well, good morning. Let's grab our Bibles. And uh, as Pastor Blair said, would you turn to James chapter 1? James chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 12 through 15 this morning. And as Blair said, um, I'm Pastor Josh DeConing from San Antonio Crossway Bible Church, and I want to bring greetings to you from that entire church and that elder team there. We are uh, so excited to be a sister church with you. I am so excited to be here with you this morning and to bring greetings and encouragement to you. I, I would just have you know, kind of like about you as a church, like when your sign went up on this building here, I, I, we had an elder meeting and we showed that sign to the entire, uh, sorry, a member meeting, the entire congregation was there and we put your sign up on the, on the screen and the entire congregation just burst into applause over what's, what God is doing here at Redemption Bible Church. We are for you and I'm glad to be here to preach from James chapter one. So if you're in James chapter one, Turn to 12 through 15. Here's something else about me. I'm a little bit of a history buff. World War II, specifically, I'm a little bit of a World War II uh, buff. And um, if you know much about the Second World War, you might already know that um, early on in the war, the British armed forces cracked the German code And that was effective throughout the entire war. Battle after battle, the the British knew ahead of time what the Germans were planning because they had cracked their code. And so all the plans that the Germans would send in secret through code over telegraph, the British already knew about. In fact, they they tried to use that information very discreetly so that the, the Germans wouldn't figure out that they'd figured out. And it was decisive throughout most of the battles of World War II and eventually the winning of the war was the fact that the German code was broken. And here in James chapter 1, he does the same type of thing for us in regards to temptation. That he, he lays out for us kind of temptation's secret plans. He decodes for us like this is how temptation works. This is what temptation is after so that we can operate with an accurate understanding of how temptation works in our lives and so that we can win those battles. And that's what we want as Christians. As Christians, we want to know that temptation isn't some mysterious, befuddling thing for us, but rather we can have an accurate understanding of how temptation operates in our hearts and our lives and we can win the battles that the enemy sets up for us. And so... That's what James gives us, temptations, plans, decoded. Let's read it together. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts No one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is God's word. 
Now, I said that James talks about temptation, and he does, but he gets to that topic by first talking about the topic he started the whole chapter with, which is testing. Testing, right? Did you, did you notice that? He started by talking about testing and trials. And testing and tempting uh, are, are similar ideas. They're not the same, but they're similar. And in fact, in the original language, you use the same word to express each idea. So James is using this play on words to show us how testing and how tempting are different and how not to confuse the two. And so he, he works through this progression. He, he gives us kind of the aim of testing, and then he gives us the origin of tempting, and then the aim of tempting. The aim of testing, and then the origin of tempting, and the aim of tempting. So let's start with that. The aim of testing. The aim of testing. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James and God's purposes in testing. He, he, he lifts our eyes that we would contemplate the final result of testing. And it's important that we have a, a picture of the final result of the tests and the why, why is that important? Well, because it's so distracted and discouraged by the here and now, by the temptation, by the tests and the trials themselves, that we forget where this is all headed. We kind of lose our passion. We lose our courage in the midst of trials when we forget the final destination. I know that I can, I can easily reinvigorate my kids by showing them that not the map of how we're going to get to the vacation spot, right? If we're going to go to Padre Island, we go to Padre Island a lot for vacation because it's close. If I just show them, okay, we're going to take I-35, we're going to take I-37, and then we're going to get to Corpus Christi, and then we'll be at Padre Island. It's not very inspiring, Right? A map is useful, super useful, right? But not very inspiring. But if I show them a picture of the final destination, hey, look, remember these, the, remember these fish we caught last year? Hey, do you, do you remember how big these waves were when we, we were body surfing on them last year? Hey, here are pictures of the sand castles we built last year, like, and we're going to go in a month. And suddenly, they're reinvigorated. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can see it. I can taste it. I can feel the sand in my mouth. I can see it. And James does that for us in regards to the tests and the trials in our lives. He lifts our eyes and says, remember the final destination. The reward of God. You love him. He, he, he shows us a picture of the final destination. He calls it the crown of life. Most commentators agree that the, the crown of life is, is, is James's term for what you also find in the scriptures in regards to um, the, the terms uh, the reward of the Father or the promise of eternal life, recompense at the resurrection of the just. 
These are all terms for the reward for the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and James puts it in terms of a victor's crown because this is what comes after exertion and endurance, right? Is there exertion and endurance in the Christian life? The answer is yes. There is exertion and endurance. And it's so easy for us to forget our way, to get discouraged, to get distracted. And James wants us to lift our eyes and see the final destination. He's saying, let your love for God and the value that you have in his reward compel you to steadfastness in this life. Lift your eyes. See where this is all headed. Because in the midst of, in the midst of trials, in the midst of tests, in the midst of hardship, it's really easy for our eyes to just be horizontal. I, I heard Aaron speak of the fact that we are a vertical church. We are a we are a fellowship of vertical churches. Our eyes are not merely on the horizontal. We in, very intentionally recognize that God is calling our eyes upward, and he's calling our eyes upward in the midst of tests as well. It's so easy for us to just have a horizontal view. We're in the midst of a test in our workplace, and the first thing that comes in our mind is we just want this resolved. We just want this nonsense to stop. God, would you, just, would you just fix this? Would you just resolve this situation? And God is saying, sometimes, yes, resolved. Sometimes, no, you're going you're, you're gonna to struggle through this test with more endurance, more steadfastness, because I want you to see a picture of the destination. I want you to take your eyes off the horizontal and look toward the aim. See my reward. Remember your love for me. Let your heart be captured and enthralled with ultimate and eternal things. What God is storing up for you, for those who love him. And that's true in all kinds of tests. That's true in marriage. God has called you to faithfulness and purity and understanding and self-sacrifice and affection. And one of the major areas of obedience to God in living those things out is marriage. Marriage is a test. Just that call is a test. Are you kidding me? And then you add to it like different priorities about money, different priorities about parenting, different hang-ups and hurts about emotional intimacy and physical intimacy, and then you lock yourselves in a house for life. <laughs> That's a test. I mean, marriage is a lot of things, but one thing it is for sure, it's a test. And James is calling you to remain steadfast and obedient to love and purity and affection and self-sacrifice but listen, listen, he's not doing it by pointing to some biblical principle that's just going to make everything in marriage easier. That's, there are such things, but that's not what he's doing. He's not pointing to some leadership principles that are just going to make your, your, your relationship with this person less chaotic. There are such things, but that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is saying, Look past this other person, look past this life, and remember your love for God in the midst of this test. 
Remember that he has called you. Remember that he has promised to reward you. Remain steadfast, not ultimately because it's what's going to solve your problems, but because he is worthy and you love him. And you might say, well, that's exactly where I'm shaky, actually. My love for God is so dim, if I'm honest. How can I dig down deep and find it? How can I look inside and see my love for God more brightly? Well, that's the wrong place to look. If you want to see your love for God brightly, if you want to see your love for God firm, you don't look inside you, you look to him. Look to him as the one who has given grace to repentant sinners and you'll remember your love. Look to him who sacrificed himself for those who were in rebellion against him and won them to himself and brought them in as sons and daughters. Then you'll remember your love. It's not about looking down inside. It's about looking up to the cross. The reasons for that cross, his holiness and your sinfulness, the reality of it, God's wrath taken for you, the rescue of it, you brought into his household, though you were his enemy. And that's where you look to remember your love. Right? 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. If your love for God is dim, if your love for God is shaky, that is the perfect starting point for a prayer of repentance. It's not that complicated. It starts like this. Oh God, my love for you is dim and shaky. But you are worthy. And you have grace for someone like me, even someone who loves poorly. Because of your cross, I am trusting your grace, Lord, and you will feel your love warm on the spot. That's a prayer worth praying this morning. It's a prayer worth praying before you leave. And now in the midst of tests and trials in your life, remember your love for him, remember your reward for him, with him forever. That's the aim of testing. And remain steadfast. So now we're going to shift a little bit because in, James, in verses 13 and 14, James moves from testing to tempting. Remember, those two ideas are very similar. You use the same word for each of them. And he moves from testing to tempting. He goes from the aim of testing to the origin of tempting. The origin of of tempting. He says in verses 13 through 14, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So 
where does tempting come from? All right. Yeah, okay, we're that kind of church. Awesome. Where does tempting come from? Own desire. Ah, just like back home. So great. Where does tempting not come from? God. And James makes pains to make sure that we've got that straight. Why? It's just like a little theological nugget he wants us to have. It's actually really important in this battle against temptation that we have an understanding of who to trust and who not to trust, right? So like if we have a conception in our minds that our desires are treacherous, that our desires in this battle could be a traitor, then we'll handle our desires one way. But if, on the other hand, we think that God is untrustworthy, that he's trying to trip us up, then we'll handle him with suspicion. Right? And in the, in the middle of a battle, you want to know who you can trust, right? And James is saying, you can trust God. You can trust what he says. You can't so much trust your desires and what they say. We should, he's, this knowledge brings us to this place of action that we should handle and operate with trust what God says. With eager reception, right? What God has to say, I trust you, I believe that you are for me. And, and handle what our desires say with suspicious inspection. I don't know that I can trust you. I don't know that you're really for me. And, and let me just give you a pastoral observation. Pastoral observation. Just put it out there. That difference in posture, I've noted, almost always makes the difference between a Christian who is consistently walking in victory over sin versus one who's consistently getting pummeled. Is which voice do you listen to with eager reception? Your desires or God's word? And which voice do you listen to with suspicious inspection? Your desires? Or do you handle God's word with suspicious inspection? I don't, I don't know. I, need, I think I need to ask some more questions of God's word. I'm not, I'm not sure that this is pushing me in the right direction. And that, that difference in posture just observing, is a huge dividing line in terms of victory in the Christian life. So what does it look like to handle our desires with suspicious inspection? What does it look like to handle our desires with suspicious inspection? I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example from my own parenting, which I've received permission to share. For instance, in my parenting, I desire respect from my children. Amen? Amen. And all the parents said, amen. I desire respect from my children. And I can remember one time I was sitting there, I was teaching one of my children. I was teaching one of my children, and uh, they were struggling with the concept I was trying to teach them, and I was standing there at the dining room table. I got my hands kind of on one of the dining room chairs. And what's coming back 
from this child is what we would probably all agree was an insufficient amount of respect, right? But actually, kind of all the way into disrespect. And I want, and I want, I desire respect for my children. And in that interaction, my desire went from a mere desire to an immediate demand. And I remember I had a hold of that chair and I just kind of slammed it down on the tile floor and kind of got her, oop, I only have one daughter, so now you wouldn't know which one. <laughs> got her attention. And what was I communicating? I demand your respect right now. Cross the line. I went hiring respect, which is fine, to demanding immediate respect, which is basically impatient domineering. That's what I was. I was, in, I was. This was impatient domineering. My sin, my desire, had been lured and enticed. And I was off in sin. Why? Because I had a sinful desire? No. But because my desire was lured and enticed because I didn't handle my desire with suspicious inspection, but rather eager reception. Hey, what I want is good, and I'm just going I'm, I'm to go for it impatiently. That makes sense? Thank you. A few more examples, or that is to say some questions. How do we handle our desires with suspicious inspection? Here's some questions we can ask of our desires to handle them, I think, in a more biblically suspicious way. For instance, fill, it, fill in whatever desire you want there. All right? And we can take just a moment. like Fill in with two or three. Right? You want respect from your children. You want um, attention from your spouse. You want, uh, you go ahead, fill them in. Take a moment. You got it? Desire. How about this? That desire. Is there good patience here? Or do I want this too fast? I think we've got these actually up on the screen. Is there good patience here? Or do I want this too fast? Might be a good desire. But is this desire luring me and enticing me into sin? Because I don't have patience. I want it too fast. There's another question. Is there good humility here? Or do I want this too much? I deserve this. I should have this. I, I should have as much of this as I want. That's not humble. Even though it might be a, a, a non-sinful desire, it could lure us and entice us into sin because of a lack of humility and are wanting it too much. Here's the third question. Is there good wisdom here? Or do I want this out of order compared to other things? So I want this out of order. In other words, there, there are things that are right and good for us to want, but we should want them a whole lot less than some other things in life. I want attention from my spouse. Is that a good desire? Yeah. But if I want it out of order with how I want to show her compassion... My desire has been lured and enticed. I'm off the path of wisdom. I want this out of order. Here's a fourth. Is there good gratitude here? Or do I want this such that I would grumble without it? Grumbling never honors the Lord. 
never honors the Lord. If I want what I want and I can't, and I, and I can't handle that desire with gratitude for what I already have, then that desire has lured and enticed me into sin. Here's the fifth, the last one. Is there good love here? Or do I want this over the good of others? Is there love here? Or do I want what I want over the good of others? When we want something over the good of others, we've gone from just acting out of good for ourselves to acting selfishly. We want what we want. We don't care what happens to others. Not godly. Our desire has lured and enticed us into sin. Now, there's such a thing as sinful desires. Those are, those are desires that God says you shouldn't desire, right? But many desires aren't bad in themselves. In fact, we often use the fact that these desires aren't bad in themselves to justify ourselves later. Like, shouldn't I want attention from my spouse? What's so wrong with that? Shouldn't I want respect from my kids? What's so wrong with that? Well, if you and I want to beat temptation's plans, we better take what James has decoded for us here and handle what our desires say with a lot less eager reception and a lot more suspicious inspection. And furthermore, handle what God says with a lot less suspicious inspection and a lot more eager reception. Or else, face the consequences. What are the consequences of falling for temptation's plans? Well, that's what James covers next. He, he goes from the origin of tempting to the aim of tempting. The aim of tempting. He says in verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the aim of tempting. That is the plan. Destructive progression. Desire conceives. That is your desire lures and entices you and, you and you just go with it. Right? That's what you want. You see it. You see that desire. You see that thing that you want. Oh, can you see that? Right? All the way back. Um, it's a fishing lure. I try to get fish to desire this. Um, and uh, I'm not very good at it. Devil's been working on making us want things too badly for a long time. He's much better at luring. And, and, and James says, your desire conceives. That is, it lures, it successfully lures and entices you. And you, without regard to patience or wisdom or love or humility or any of those things, you just go with it. And now you're on the hook. And now you're on the fight. And desire wants to, and sin wants to have you. Sin wants to harden you away from repentance. Sin wants to create habits. Sin wants to make your life more self-absorbed. And sin wants to ultimately destroy you. Ultimately destroy you. That's, that's where this fight ends up with you in the cooler. Again, 
something I try to do regularly, get fish in the cooler, and they're just so uncooperative. And we seem to be a whole lot more cooperative than the fish. We just go for it. And the plan of temptation is you in the cooler. What, that's what he says. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I think James is talking about all kinds of death here. Certainly spiritual death, right? The, the, the end of those who do not repent and trust God is eternal death, but also physical death. It was by sin that death entered the world. But I think he's talking about all kinds of death and destruction along the way. The death of relationship, the death of re reputation, all kinds of death and destruction James has in mind. And the idea here is how do we take advantage of knowing temptation's plans and avoid all kinds of death? And I think our best counter move, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go with one this morning. Our best counter move. Don't take the bait. Our best counter move is don't take the bait. Beat temptation at the beginning of its plan and don't take the bait. The the end, the end of temptation's plan is all kind of death and destruction. And even in that, there are often ways that God brings healing, though it's often slow and painful. And the middle, the middle of temptation's plan is sin. And, and for that, there's a, there's a repentant fight and a hard mortal combat against it. But the beginning of temptation's plan is your best opening for the win. Don't take the bait. Make sense? I mean, like, how clouded is a person's judgment who says, you know, I know that once I bite down on this, I'm in for the fight of my life, but I'm going to choose that. I'm going to go ahead and try to win with a hook and a line in my mouth. Instead of just winning before temptation can snag me into its plan. That is not a strategy for success. That is not a good plan based on what we've learned. Rather, rather, as desires come, as desires come, we refuse to just take the bait. Instead, we take our desires to God. Lord, is this a sinful desire? Is what I want an ungodly thing? If so, just reject it. But even if it's not a sinful desire, we still want to handle it in a way that's not sinful. Right? God, here's the desire. I'm bringing it to you. Give me good patience here. I don't want to want this too fast. God, here's the desire. Give me good humility in this. I don't want to want this too much. Give me good wisdom here. I don't want to want this out of order. Give me good gratitude here. I don't want to want this so much that I would grumble without it. Give me good love here. I don't want to want this more than I want the good for others. We bring our desires to God. We don't take the bait. So it's, as, as James has decoded temptation's plans for us, we beat temptation at the beginning. We don't take the bait. We handle what God says with eager reception. We handle what our desires say with suspicious inspection. 
and we remain steadfast by lifting our eyes to him, right? Remembering his reward, remembering our love for him, right? Our, Our eyes are fixed on the destination. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Temptation's plans aren't secret. They've been decoded. They've been laid out for us. By God's grace, these are battles we can win. Let's stand and pray together. Lord God, we ask that you would, in fact, give us victory. That you would, in fact, give us presence of mind. That as temptations, plans are unfolding in our lives, as desires come, And it would be so easy for us to just go with them, to be lured and enticed by our desires. Be they sinful or be they perfectly good desires that we would handle in a sinful way, Lord, we do not want to be handling our Christian life in ignorance, but rather, as you have laid out temptations, plans for us, Lord, we want to handle our lives with worship and wisdom. Lord, as you bring tests and trials, we want to lift our eyes. We're not not merely asking for horizontal problem solving, Lord. We want our eyes fixed on you in worship and adoration. We want to remember our love for you. And Lord, we want to honor you and see you lifted up in all of our decisions, our choices. We are the people of God and we want to walk as those who are godly, Lord. Give us the strength to do us, to, to do that. Give us the presence of mind to do that. By your spirit, would you give us the power to look at our desires and bring them to you. Help us to win those battles in Jesus' name.